once wore magic in the supernatural. I am here to bring you a glimmer of hope for tomorrow. This is the Voice of Hope podcast, and you can call me Beacon, your auditory guide to the safety of Castle Refuge. To all Tomorrow's Legion teams in the field, we are experiencing some interference from the local ley lines. Your mission profile references are... 20, 13, 8, Queen of Diamonds, 4, 6, 3, 3, 7, 12, 8, King of Diamonds, 20, 7, 17, 4, 3, 18, 3. Every challenge is an opportunity of sorts. An ancient human saying goes, opportunities are like sunrises. If you wait too long, you'll miss them. This quote applies to a great deal of the Tomorrow Legion's missions recently. The last few transmissions, we've seen a number of challenges rise against the Tomorrow Legion, be it the mission to rescue the Ironheart Avengers, the challenge of the Brokill Sivan Cannibal Alliance, and the mysterious ritual being accomplished in Calgary, the appearance of a new diabolical cult in the Magic Zone, or the summoning of an aquatic monster here in the Arkansas Territory. These challenges have opened several new opportunities with groups we have just started cooperating with, like Reed's Rangers or the City of Mage Star. It also opens some new mysteries to explore, like who are the aquatic people that helped fight off the demonic tentacles in southern Arkansas. If we are to build this new tomorrow, we must grasp each opportunity the way we drink in the sunrise after the darkest night. Later in the broadcast, I have some information concerning the Mexico mission for our listeners. However, first, I have been authorized to share an interesting opportunity that could yield another potential alliance for the Tomorrow Legion. Set 42 and several other teams operating in the Magic Zone have received a recorded declaration to the people of North America. The following audio transmission is of this announcement. For too long, we, the warriors of the Eastern Woods, have lived alongside those who do not respect our territorial boundaries. The skull men of the coalition states, their servant hounds, the chrome-clad sentinels from the north, the spell weavers of Laszlo, the pirates and minions of Atlantis, and all the other so-called kingdoms of the land have brought upon us slight after slight as they tread without restraint upon the lands of our foremothers. They do as they please and have little regard for the people of the woodland. It stops today. All those who live in our domain shall suffer these injustices no more. The lands from the eastern wall to the ocean from this day forward are under Shimarian supervision. No person, not even the noble Shimarian, can own the pathless woods, but we proud Shimarians are placing these woods under our protection. You may think of them as ours, now and forever. A thousand of your miles or 1,600 of your kilometers from the great swamps in the south to the banks of the great river in the north we measure as the Shimarian nation. Leave it alone. Do not interfere with our people or meddle in our affairs. Stay to your own lands, and we will stay in ours. Make no mistake, this is not a declaration of war. This is a declaration of sovereignty. Your nations have no claim to the lands where Shimarians have tread for generations. We assert our claim, our rights, and our position today. These coastal lands are the Shimarian nation. Respect our borders and our people, and we coexist in peace, as it should be. We do not wish to wage war with our neighbors, but we will protect our people, our lands, and all who live among us in this great green woods. The wilderness offers you nothing. So leave it and us be.
You should be content to stay away, as you have no place here. Your place is on your side of Eastern Wall and Northern River; ours is here. Keep things as they should be, and all shall be well between us. Do not send envoys or emissaries, as we will only turn them away. If you come with fighting forces, they shall be slain. Try to establish a new settlement or city or military camp, and they shall be destroyed. People may travel through our lands; individuals may fish and hunt and enjoy the splendor of the woods; but they may not tame wild life, enslave people, nor take or damage the land. You may not settle here, nor plumb our lands for minerals, nor dump your waste here. We, the Shemmarian people, are the protectors of this land, the Shemmarian nation, and those who defile it and deface it shall face our wrath without mercy. "To the people with whom we have coexisted for generations, those of you who live among us, have nothing to fear. Do not be worried or discouraged. Your existence is now a safer and joyous one under the protection of the Shemmarian nation. We shall continue to coexist in peace. Though it is not yours to own, you may continue to live on the lands you have settled. Know that you are allowed to live there by the grace of the Shemmarian nation. Know that you must honor and respect our great forest and do nothing to destroy it, nor do anything to invite its destruction. Live in harmony with us and your surroundings, and you shall find the Shemmarian warriors protect you as we do all things within our sovereign nation. Fear not the Skull soldiers beyond the Eastern Wall, nor their Chromian brethren to the north, as we shall stand against them. Furthermore, we shall protect you from our mutual enemies, the Splugorth and Horun, who come from the monster-filled seas beyond our lands. They are the enemy of the day, and every one of them that sets foot on our land shall be struck down where they stand. Sleep easy, knowing that we will keep the evil tide at bay, and that lo as long as Shemarians have strength left in us, we shall push all slavers, destroyers, and monsters back to the hell from which they have crawled. This message is both a challenge and an opportunity. The Shemarian are a powerful and warlike tribal race of DB females with a surprisingly high level of technology. They have lived on the eastern coast of the North American continent for as long as anyone can remember. The Tamar Legion has had some encounters with them on a few occasions that have led to losses. So this race has claimed a large swath of territory in a way that's no different than the coalition claims the area surrounding Castle Refuge. However, the opportunity is there stands against one of the most dangerous threats to sentience in North America, the Splugorth Slavers. Currently, there is little good intel on the Shamarians. Most of what we have found, we have acquired from other nations. Much of this information is filled with inconsistencies. For example, the Shamarians are known to be a nomadic tribal people, but they have a high level of technology. We know of several other instances of this, like the Native American preserves or the Broadkill. The dichotomy between the Native American tribes and the Broadkill's use of technology is stark. The Native American preserves are bastions of technology that provide support to the tech used by the other natives at varying levels and degrees. The Broadkill, on the other hand, do not build or maintain technology. They raid and steal it from other technological races. They have even been known to enslave tech users for the purpose of maintaining their technology. Technology. The Shamarians are different. All available intel suggests that their weapons and bionics are unique to their species. However, there is no indication of Shamarian cities or an industrial base. Some rumors suggest that either their industry is underground or in another dimension, which 
further supports the rumors that the Shamarians are a vanguard of an alien invasion force. While this is a possibility, they have not been overly hostile to the other nations of North America, as the Declaration says. They are remaining in their area where they have existed for generations and primarily defending themselves in that region. The only major group that they attack without mercy is the Splugorth, and their hatred for the Splugorth and the Haroon pirates is well known. So it seems that the Tomorrow Legion and the Shamarians have a like enemy, and the old human adage goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Because of this, Counselor Michelson is considering sending a set team to the Shamarian nation to an attempt to parlay with the warrior women. Nevertheless, the declaration was very specific about sending envoys to the nation. A local window of opportunity has appeared, on the other hand. Intel has identified a warband of Shamarians moving through the region, possibly en route to support their sisters in Mexico. Teams operating around Murktown have identified a mixed war party of Shamarians moving towards the northern Arkansas corridor. The spokeswoman for this group is a war chief by the name of Emma Scria. This war chief, while stern and direct, is not as combative as other Shamarians we have encountered in the past. Of course, this group has destroyed a few roving bands of broadkill and a mercenary unit saying it was trying to collect a bounty from Atlantis, so they have demonstrated that engaging the war party should not be taken lightly. Our operatives have also confirmed that the local CS patrols have been ordered to observe only. Engagement is only authorized should the war band engage any coalition settlements. Observations indicate that this group is about 20 strong, with six warriors riding the standard cybernetically enhanced Monrex mounts, another six riding some giant cybernetically enhanced birds, three are lightly modified berserkers, think bionic Amazonians, uh, crazies riding on a giant furry beetle. Now, if our operatives are to be believed, this group has a number of previously unknown Shamarians. First, the group is led by a war goddess, apparently a living demigod amongst the Shamarians. We recently acquired a video from Free Quebec which shows a war goddess defeating two Samus and a heavy cyborg single-handedly while a group of Shamarian warriors watched. This war party also has a group of smaller females that appear to be technical staff leading a column of unmodified Monrex pack animals. The most interesting fact is the unit also includes several male-looking members that act as scouts overseeing a pack of 30 wolf-like creatures. Apparently the species does have males after all. Legion Command is considering sending a set team to parley with the war party, hopefully to establish further diplomatic interactions with the Shamarian nation. While the Shamarian announcement has created a new potential opportunity for the Legion, a new local player has the potential for creating both a challenge and an opportunity as well. Listeners may remember in an earlier episode that the Legion had a run-in with an enforcer from the Chicago Network faction of the black market by the name of Gilbert Fairchild. Mr. Fairchild helped the Council of Hope negotiate a contract with the black market to assist moving refugees to Castle Refuge and the Laszlo. Apparently, that plan propelled Mr. Fairchild to a higher level in the network, and he has reappeared in the Fayetteville area, establishing a black market trading post in the ruins of the college in Fayetteville. The crew has called itself the Razorbacks, and they have already made a reputation for providing what people want and protecting the local community. However, there is a price for such protection. The Razorbacks have been charging the community a fee for their security, and the locals have also had to deal with an uptick in vices like drug use and prostitution. 
Major Cheney has worked with the black market on a number of occasions to get supplies to the Legion and to the castle. However, Major Hensel has expressed concern with the increase in crime and drugs in the settlement community since the Razorback crew has opened their doors. Legion security is also concerned the Razorbacks might be providing the retribution movement with heavier weapons and dangerous magic items. At some point, the Council of Hope is going to have to come to an understanding with Mr. Fairchild. However, all teams in the area should be aware that Mr. Fairchild is a dangerous individual in his own right. When dealing with him or the Razorbacks, approach with caution. Calatin's latest transmission has finally completed decoding, and it seems the northern corner of Oklahoma is also providing its own share of challenges and opportunities as well. Well, Beacon, I'll tell you, that scrap with the angry dog boy might be the closest to death I've ever been, and I've seen some gnarly stuff, man. I mean, there I was, pinned by this angry being, his high-tech knives inches from my face, his body wound coil of rage-filled energy. And yeah, I would have gone to the Summerlands, but for this other creature there. Battlecat, also in makeshift armor, roared from the trail. She came out of nowhere, man, with a blood-curdling roar. She fired a laser rifle in a burst that caught me in the leg and hit the dog boy a couple of times in the side. He leapt off me, swiping my chest with vibro-vambraces, leaving an open gash. I tried to get up and get some cover and cast something, but I was losing blood fast, man. The two beast people fought each other, and I saw the battle cat land several hard blows on my attacker. But things got fuzzy, and I passed out. Some time later, I came to in a beautiful gully filled with bright flowers, strange mushrooms, and a host of peaceful animals. Right away, I could feel the energy of a ley line. Someone had bandaged me. I saw the dog boy thoroughly bound and tied to a tree. I rolled myself up from the soft moss bed, but I could tell I was still hurt. Someone spoke up behind me. I saw the battle cat there. She told me that Queen Fraxinia tried to heal me, but it had taken too long to get me there. We were in a fairy village, and I saw some of the wee creatures peek out from their hiding places. I thanked the battle cat, and we talked for a bit about why I was out in the woods and what she was up to. It turned out she was from the strange village I was approaching. She had been out there to see friends she had made in the fairy glen we were in. Eventually, some of the fairies themselves came out to meet us. My new friend Cinderella, she called herself, didn't like spending much time in the village, though she said she had nothing against it. She just liked the outdoors, and she liked the fairies she had befriended. Seeing as they were beings important to my religion, I had to agree they were a good reason to be out and about. Now, eventually, I got to meet Queen Fraxinia, and I told her of my faith and all the wonderful aspects of the horned god and the goddess. They were of similar minds, so we shared stories of heroes and people of virtue until it was night. At that point, I decided to show them my own special magical power and cast my mighty healing power over myself, channeling the energy of the ley line. Now, the next day, Cinderella said she would take me to their village. I'm sure Smila was going to be worried, but I also knew I had found something special. Next time, Began, I'll tell you about my visit to Crosshaven. It was nothing like I was expecting. 
Callaton. Thank you for your latest transmission. I hope your next message finds you still safe, my friend. And finally, listeners, the part of the transmission I've been dreading. You are all familiar with the Legion's preparation to extract the Ironheart Avenger refugees from deep within Mexico. Well, the planning staff has identified several issues that's put the, the mission in a precarious position. The last episode, Evie Rodriguez, the liaison from Reed's Rangers, identified some issues with our plan. The use of an entire battalion of the Legion as a distraction was a critical element of the plan. That aspect of the mission has been dropped due to Miss Rodriguez's inputs. That alone increased the risk of the mission. However, the reconnaissance of the pyramid near the Avengers location has thrown a potential wrench into the mission. The pyramid that Gale identified as a potential location for the Legion to ingress the area isn't actually a magical structure. This building appears to be a replica of the local pyramids built during the pre-Rift's time and is not actually an ancient pyramid tied to the Leyline network. So, the nearest locations that the Iron Elmore could enter the region through are precariously close to either the Coalition Outpost in Veracruz or the Vampire City of Minatilan. General Magruder feels that the CS is a better-known threat and recommends using the Nexus near Veracruz. However, this level of risk is beyond the Legion's execution authority, so it's going to a council vote. An emergency meeting has been called concerning this mission. Unfortunately, the High Defender is in Laszlo for a diplomatic mission with our allies, so Lord Coke is overseeing the council in her stead. I hope to have an update for you on my next broadcast. Until then, stay safe, move surely, and look out for your fellow refugees. I, Beacon, will guide you to your new tomorrow. Speak to you again soon. I would like to thank Dr. John Stewart for his continued support for the show as Callaton. I would also like to invite everyone to join the transition of the Savage Rifts community to MeWe. Victor is getting ready to put together the 2019 Character Codex. Also, check out SavageRifts.com, the premier play-by-post uh, community, and look for the Rifts Living Campaign Club on Facebook for online and con games in California. And finally, I'd like to thank my friend Casey Azell for voicing the Shimmerian Declaration of Sovereignty, and she agreed to hang out for a short interview. While I've known Casey from my day job for quite some time, she's a longtime gamer and author. Casey, welcome to The Voice of Hope. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, my name's Casey Azell. I'm a uh, military officer and helicopter pilot, uh, along with Sean, and i uh, I write books. I write uh, fantasy, science fiction, military fantasy, military science fiction, uh, some post-apocalyptic stuff, some uh, hard-boiled noir type stuff. I'm kind of all over the place, which um, honestly gives my publisher uh, fits of, of frustration every now and then. <laughs> so Casey, what are some of the books that you've written and some of the authors that you've worked with? Um, so my own solo stuff, uh, my, my first novel is a novel called Minds of Men. Um, it's an alternate history or military fantasy, depending on how you want to look at it. It's a story of uh, psychic women flying on World War II bombers um, in, the, uh, in the skies over occupied Europe. And uh, that one came out last year, and uh, I was honored that uh, it was chosen as a finalist for the Dragon Award in 2017. Uh, working on the sequel to that right now, which will be a uh, Cold War spy thriller. So. A little bit of alternate history, a little bit of military fantasy there. Um, I've also written, um, uh, co-written a couple of books in the Four Horsemen Universe series, which is a massive shared world, um, mercenary-based mech combat 
sci-fi universe um, created by a friend of mine by the name of Mark Wandry and developed by him and Chris Kennedy, who also moonlights as my publisher. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the two books that I've written there are uh, Assassin, uh, which is the story of um, the galaxy's most feared assassins, um, which are feline, feline-esque aliens. Uh, I co-wrote that with Marisa Wolf, and then I co-wrote uh, Weaver with Mark Wandry, uh, which is a story, it's basically a love story between a um, Volkswagen-sized, ten-legged spider and her, uh, her foot-tall chipmunk, psychotic chipmunk partner. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't worry, there's no sex involved. <laughs> yeah, right, that would be gross. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so <clears throat> those are my novels. Um, in addition, I have uh, quite a few short stories out. Um, I've written a, uh, uh, I guess the first big thing that I had out was a, a zombie apocalypse story uh, set in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising universe uh, in the anthology called Black Tide Rising. And that story was um, uh, called Not in Vain. It was uh, basically cheerleaders versus zombies, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and then uh, in addition to that, I've worked with Michael Z. Williamson in his Freehold universe, uh, wrote a story called Forged in Blood. Um, that also won an award last year, so um, super, super humbled by that. And um, uh, done some other stuff with, uh, with Mad Mike Williamson. I've written with uh, Tom Crapman um, for his upcoming anthology in his uh, uh, Carreraverse series. And uh, a bunch more in the Four Horsemen universe. Um, in addition to all of that, uh, I also had the incredible privilege of working with Larry Correa of Monster Hunter International. Um, together we edited an anthology called Noir Fatale that is um, a look at the, the darker side of uh, fantasy and science fiction, um, telling stories focused around a femme fatale archetype, um, but in a science fiction and fantasy uh, setting. So lots of, uh, lots of really great stories. That's coming out in May of 2019 from Bane Books, and um, it's going to be phenomenal. It is phenomenal. Uh, we've got an original Honorverse story from David Weber in there. Uh, we've got an original Grim Noir story from Larry in there. Uh, we've got a, a story from Laurel K. Hamilton in her Anita Blake universe. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, I'm starstruck uh, just from, <laughs> just from uh, being able to read the incredible quality of the stories that, that we got for that. So That's pretty awesome. And uh, actually even working with you, I didn't know the, the, breadth and depth of some of the stuff that you've been working on. Oh yeah, on. I'm, I'm super ADD when it comes to my writing. <laughs> I'm all over the place. <laughs> nice. So, of course, uh, so that's you as an author. What about you as a gamer? So, um, I, as a gamer, am uh, perennially frustrated because I, I never get to game as, as much as I want to. As, as are all of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I... Uh, uh, let's see. I, I guess I'm primarily a tabletop gamer. Uh, I, I really like the old school pen and paper, you know, sit around a table and roll some dice with your friends and play with imaginary people. Um, I, like a lot of writers, I, uh, I find a lot of parallels between making up my own stories in my head and making up stories with my friends around a table. It's just sort of a more social version of doing what we do. Um, and uh, so I, I guess I really, I think... Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is the gateway drug for a lot of people, but for me, this probably says something about me as a human being, but for me, I guess my gateway drug was the old school white wolf vampire, the masquerade way back <laughs> in the, in the late nineties. Yeah. Um, uh, so that was, that was the first, uh, the first 
tabletop game I ever played. Uh, and actually, I think I LARPed before I played tabletop, which is wow. unusual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a little um, uh, But, you know, I mean, what's not to love about running around at night on a college campus pretending to be a vampire with, you know, 20 or so of your closest friends. Yeah, true. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, uh, so that's that's sort of how I got into gaming. Um, and then uh, played... Um, Played some White Wolf games, uh, played Changeling, that was a lot of fun. Um, got into Shadowrun and fell completely in love with it um, on multiple levels. That's one of the, Shadowrun's, Shadowrun is probably my favorite game ever, um, simply because it does work on so many levels. Um, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic adventure game, um, but it also has those those elements of like the hard-boiled noir stories, you know, the, the detect, it could be a detective story, it could be a heist story, you know, just depending on how you want to take it. But all of those thematic elements that I love so much from, you know, Raymond Chandler novels and, um, and Dashiell Hammett novels and, you know, the film noir of the 30s and 40s, all of those elements are still there and, mm. and really fun to play with, so. Awesome. Yeah. And well, just uh, to establish for the listeners, have you ever played Riffs? I have not, um, but I've heard you talk about it quite a bit, and I'm, I'm actually really interested in it, um, and would would love to play again if we have time. If we have time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What What better game can you play than you get to play dragon? Oh yeah, that's that's valid. That's valid. I do have a bit of a fascination with dragons. That's very true. So, uh, with both being an author and a gamer, like you kind of uh, talked about it a little bit with Shadowrun. What are some of your favorite genres that Oh man. Okay. So definitely the noir genre is, is high up there. Um, I also really love like the, the, just the classic epic fantasy adventure, you know, with the hero's journey, um, where you've got people traveling around doing various things, um, you know, looking for something or chasing after something. Um, trying to find the MacGuffin, trying to, right. Trying to find the MacGuffin, um, you know, and, and falling into crazy adventures along the way and interacting with people along the way. Um, as a writer, I'm very character focused. As a reader and a fan, I'm very character focused. So any game that's going to allow me to develop the essence of my character, not not just their numerical skills or you know their their bonuses or any of that, but but the personality of who they are. Any game that's going to allow me to explore that, I'm in. Yeah. yeah. Actually, the first game uh, Casey and I played together was at our first assignment in Montana, and she played a very precocious uh, uh, Republic princess yeah. uh, from the Clone Wars while I got to run around as a squad of, of clone troopers. Yeah, so. we played uh, Star Wars. That was fun. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. So, uh, so along with genres, though, what themes do you like to include in your writing, and then what ideas do you like to bring from your writing into gaming? Um, so, I... You know, again, I, I like the themes of inter, interpersonal conflict and development. Um, I, I like to explore this idea of, you know, no one is no one is perfect. No one is perfectly bad or perfectly good. Except for Honor Harrington. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she's uh, she's she's pretty good. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, no no one is is perfect. Everyone has their flaws and their faults and their challenges to overcome. And that's something that that I think is universal to the human condition, right? So even if you're not technically playing a human or writing about a human, in order to resonate with humans, um, who, if you're a writer, that's who's going to be reading your work, at least for the foreseeable future anyway. <laughs> um, we can hope. <laughs> yeah, we can hope. Uh, that 
you know, th that's a theme that, that is necessary. Um, so, you know, moving into whenever we get to play games that deal with characters interacting with one another, um, uh, building teams, you know, creating friction within those teams, um, you know, finding, finding out dark secrets about one another, helping each other overcome stuff in the past, all that kind of stuff is, is fascinating to me. So a lot of the social meta game is kind of what you're doing. Oh really yeah, enjoying. I'm all about it. I'm awesome. All about it. Um, so of course we, we talked about military experience. So how does your military experience help you with both your writing and your gaming, and vice versa? How do those things influence you as a, a pilot and officer? Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, well, my my first novel is a is sort of my love letter to aviation military aviation history. Um, you know, because I'm writing about uh, B-17s in World War II. Um, and I have some pretty extensive air combat scenes that um, I'm very proud of and, and that I've received quite a lot of positive feedback on um, because while the combat situation that, that I personally have experienced was not in a B-17 over occupied Europe being shot at by Luftwaffe fighters and and and, and eighty-eight millimeter guns. Um, There's I was able to pulse, you know, some some of the sensations and emotions that you know that happen. The excitement, um, the fear. Right. Yeah. The the what does it feel like in your gut to have that adrenaline hit your body when you know that someone's shooting at you? You know, like I was able to pull that from that experience um, and translate that into my characters. Um, and then the other thing too is just knowing about how airplanes fly and you know the fact that it's super cold at you know 50,000 feet um, I haven't been at 50,000 feet myself but I'm able to my familiarity with aviation terminology and it, it helps me know kind of where to look to find out some of these details um, and uh, and you can it just you know everybody writes what they know yeah. and so I know you know, I know my almost 20-year career in the military, and I know aviation, um, and so that's what I write about. And, of course, being uh, Air Force and Academy grads, I mean, we've met people like the crew, the Enola Gay, yeah. and so, it, you know, even touching those people kind of brings a little bit of a footprint along with you. Absolutely. Um, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Colonel Gail Haverson uh, before he died. Um, uh, he, who, if you're not familiar, he was known as the candy bomber during the Berlin airlift. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, he was a super, super nice gentleman. Um, I actually met him twice, once as a little kid, um, and then once again, uh, when I was a cadet and, um, you know, meeting him. So right now I'm writing about the Berlin airlift, uh, in my, in my book two of my series and meeting him, even just talking to the guy, it was very cool to be able to sort of bring that all together and, um, you know, and, and now have that inform my work as I'm developing it. That's cool. Yeah. And how does that affect your gaming? Um, <clears throat> well, I think, see, here's the secret. Gaming and writing, they're not two different things. Right. They're the same, right? So if, you know, if I'm running a game as, it, as, as the game master, <clears throat> then obviously I'm the lead author. But if I'm not, if I'm just playing, I'm still writing my character, right? So everything that informs my writing also informs my gaming and the style in which I'm going to play, you know, my character. Um, you know, so, um, you know, even in, a, even in a very simple, you know, D&D &D fantasy campaign, right? So, you know, I have a character who is, uh, they're walking through the woods and all of a sudden there's an ambush. Like, I am able to 
I, I'm able to utilize what I know about how the body reacts to sudden, you know, life or death situations um, that I've encountered uh, both in combat and in aviation to, um, and, and not necessarily together, <laughs> um, to, I'm able to, to, you know, use that in, and, and it informs my play style and, and okay. hopefully makes it better and hopefully makes a better um, experience for the rest of the party too. Yeah. So cool. it's all about immersiveness in oh, writing yeah. and in gaming. So True. And, you know, that's that's the level by which the video game industry measures its effectiveness. For sure, yeah. For now, sure. on the flip side, though, how do those things that, from your writing and gaming affect your life as a pilot and as an author, or as an officer in the Air Force? Well, the biggest one is that both writing and gaming, the biggest advantage that I can see there's is twofold. One is you get very, very good at communicating clearly what your intent is, what your actions are. Um, and this is specifically talking about gaming, right? Um, so you, you get very good at, at describing, okay, or articulating your intent. Um, that is directly translatable to any career that you do as an adult human um, in, in life. You have to be able to clearly articulate your intent, uh, your actions, um, and enable to interface with other humans in the world. Um, and same is true of writing, you know, um, writing, you're, you're articulating not just your intent, but, you know, other things. But the ability to clearly express ideas in written form or verbally is, uh, is a huge advantage. Um, and as we know, specific to aviation, it can be, a, you know, the difference between living and dying, you know, because the, the communication between the crew is so critical. Um, that in fact, that was one of the major themes of, of my book, Minds of Men, is the whole reason that the main character was there was to facilitate communication between the crew, um, you know, because it, it could mean the difference between living and dying. So, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, okay, so um, how hard is it to jump into a universe, something like the Four Horsemen or Black Tide, that belong, kind of belongs to another author, and then start kind of building your own stories and yeah. tying into that world? Um, it isn't hard, but it is a process. Mm -hmm. the, the, the biggest thing that I have to say about writing in someone else's property, because that's what it is, right? It's, you know, Black Tide Rising is John Ringo's intellectual property. The Four Horsemen Universe is Chris Kennedy and Mark Wandry's intellectual property. You have to go in with an attitude of respect, right? You're not trying to walk into <clears throat> you're not trying to walk into someone's house and say, "This is my bedroom. I claim to this bedroom. It is mine." They're inviting you into their house, and you have to walk in with respect, understanding that you may be able to make a part of it reflect something of you, but it's still their house. If that if you can follow that convoluted metaphor. <laughs> No, <laughs> um, so, you know, the first thing is, is you know, you have to be uh, familiarize yourself with the property. Uh, if you can, you know, read the books, read the short stories, talk to the creator. So much about collaborative writing is all about communication. Um, and that's what makes works either work or not work. And because fans can tell, fans can always tell. And, uh, um, you know, and they, they'll be vicious if it doesn't work. So... Um, so be respectful, communicate with the, with the, um, the creator, um, make sure that you, like when we went, when Maurice and I went to go write Assassin, the thing about Assassin is that it's, it's a part of the Four Horsemen universe, it's one of the core novels, but it isn't, um, it isn't a, 
military sci-fi book in a military sci-fi universe. It's it's essentially kind of a, um, a heist story or an intrigue story, almost a whodunit, I guess, really. Um, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, so to be able to write this different kind of story about these aliens, we had to have very close communication with Mark and Chris um, because we're constantly saying, you know, we would write something and we'd shoot it off to them and say, okay, does this work? It, if it doesn't, you know, what what do I need to do to make it to make it work? And some of the stuff was was sort of simple world building logistics stuff, like how long does it take to travel through hyperspace in you know Four Horsemen Universe? The answer is well, about seven days. Um, but, uh, but that's just that's just one of those details that Mark and Chris set up when they were doing their world building that you have to respect, right? You're not going to walk into someone else's house and start knocking down walls because that that brings the whole structure down, um, or could anyway. So. Um, so yeah, so you have to have great communication with those series creators, uh, and um, and then you just work on telling a good story. You know, your characters are yours; the setting belongs to someone else. That's fine. And here, I think, honestly, this is a place where I think gamers have an advantage, especially you know tabletop gamers, because I I don't own Vampire the Masquerade. You know, I don't own D and don't own Shadowrun, but I own my character. And I'm used to making my character function within the rules of that world. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very similar, it's a very similar type of, of dynamic. So you create your character, you tell your story, you be honest mm -hmm. with your story and honest with your character, and you just make sure that it and communicate with the series creator to make sure that it works within the world. Awesome. So uh, I will ask, you shared a story with me a little bit of how you got started in writing something about Johnny Ringo and teaching him how to talk like a helicopter crew. Oh, sure, yeah. So, um, so John Ringo, um, and if you're not familiar, um, first of all, what, what rock are you living under? Second of all, um, he's uh, uh, he's written several male sci-fi stories uh, series. Um, uh, probably best known for his Ghost series, or possibly uh, the Black Tide Ride. I'm not sure which is bigger at this point, but. In any case, um, I met John Ringo at uh, Dragon Con, which if you've never been to Dragon Con, you should definitely put that on your bucket list because it's amazing. I'm trying to get Sean to go. I've been trying to get Sean to go for years. Um, I've been once. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, uh, so I met John Ringo at Dragon Con. We struck up a friendship um, and he told me that he was, um, he was uh, asking, um, or he was writing a scene with some helicopters and needed basically a technical advisor, and he wanted to know if, if he could send me the scene. And I said, sure, absolutely, send it, you know, send it on. Um, so he sent me the scene, um, and you know, I gave him a couple pointers and, and sent it back, and, and that was it, that was nothing. And then um, fast forward, like, it, we, we, we remained friends, you know, and so we're communicating this whole time and stuff. Um, and then like fast forward a couple of years, and um, well, the, the real start actually, for, for me writing professionally was when I was deployed. I was in Iraq and I get an email from John saying, hey, I'm doing a, um, an anthology called Citizens um, that is military science fiction written by military veterans. And I need to, I, I mean, I have a lot of the greats. I have like a Robert A. Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke's series or a story that we're gonna reprint, but I need some new stuff um, by new people. Do you have anything? And I said, no, but I could. And 48 <laughs> hours later, I sent him the draft of um, the story Light uh, that was then published um, uh, in, that, in that volume 
uh, uh, you know, about a year later, um, which was great. I was, uh, you know, I was super excited and, and, you know, what a great, what a great way to have this opportunity just handed to me. Um, and then a couple years later, he was working on the Black Tide Rising series and um, working on Strands of Sorrow specifically. And again, he asked me to consult on his helicopter scenes. And he sent me a scene of uh, an, an MH-53 um, with a, you know, a couple crew members on it. And they're basically doing hoist stops, picking up survivors from the zombie apocalypse off of the rooftop. And I read it, and I read it out loud to my husband because my husband is a um, former uh, MH-53 gunner. Uh, from the um, from when he was in the Air Force, and I read it, and, and my husband's like, "Wait, how many people is he talking about?" And he didn't. John didn't have enough people um, to do the thing that the helicopter, you know, was requiring. So I sent John back that feedback and said, "Hey, man, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you need a whole other character here." <laughs> and uh, that 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 year at DragonCon, he pulled me aside. He was like, "Hey, yeah, so." I, I don't know how to do this and make it right. Can you just write the scene? And I was like, are you, are you serious? He's like, yeah, just write the scene and then send it to me. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> so I, I wrote the scene and created another character that I then named after my husband. <laughs> and Because, uh, I, I mean, I should have some perks, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so, yeah, so if you're familiar with his work, uh, the, um, the helicopter scene in uh, Strands of Sorrow um, with uh, uh, where... Um, Sophia is piloting the, the 53. Um, that's, uh, that's where that came from. So, Awesome. Yeah. And, and John was super great about it. I mean, he wrote me a super nice you know, thing in the acknowledgments and then, uh, and then invited me to, to write in his Black Tide Rising anthology. And that's when things really started to take off for me. That's amazing. Yeah. Sometimes it just, uh, things fall at the right place at the right time. Right? right, yeah. Well, and then the, the super, super, super cool postscript after that is that after that, um, John uh, invited me and one of my writing partners, a guy by the name of Chris Smith, to work on a property that he was developing with him. Um, and we just turned in the first book to Tony this past month. So hmm. look for a new series by John Ringo, Casey Ezell, and Christopher L. Smith called The Last Judgment's Fire series coming out in spring of 2020. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was pretty cool. Gotcha. So I guess the, kind of the funny question is, so if you were to take like all the things, so take the psychics from Minds of Men, the mecha and aliens and all that kind of stuff from Four Horsemen, uh -huh. um, zombies and the supernatural and stuff from like your, your noir stuff, and then the cybernetics and magic and stuff from, uh, from Shadowrun, and threw it all together and you were given that, like here's all those things, now create a world and write a, write a story. Yeah. Where, where would you start? Oh man, well, I would start where I always start. I would start with a character. Mm -hmm. um, I would I would create a character that was an interesting individual, and then I would give them a problem, and uh, a problem that was uniquely suited to them, and see how they go about solving it. You know, um, and uh, which of those elements would I use? I don't know. Depends on the day. You know. Mm -hmm. Uh, hopefully, eventually, maybe all of them, because wouldn't that be cool, right? You know, sort of a smorgasbord of experiences to write about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I would start. Is you start with the character and you give them a problem. Okay. So a bunch of people meet in a meet in a bar. Yeah, they, but that's not a problem. That's just like Tuesday night, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> cool. 
Um, well, and I guess the last question you kind of answered, uh, some, uh, is there anything else that listeners from you, from your writing work, that people should be looking out for? Yeah, sure. So um, Marisa, Wolf, and I are currently working on the sequel to Assassin. Again, that's in the Four Horsemen universe. Um, uh, so that sequel is called Hunter, and it should be out um, sometime in early next year. Um, and then I'm also currently working on uh, the sequel to Minds of Men, my solo novel, um, and that sequel is called uh, The World of Sun, The World Asunder, and that will be out uh, again sometime in 2019. I'm not sure when. Um, if you're not familiar with the Four Horsemen universe, I highly encourage you to check out uh, Cartwright's Cavaliers by Mark Wandry. That's the first book and gateway drug into the universe. Um, and it's, it's a really fun romp through this mech-based, mercenary-based, military science fiction universe. So, um, so check that out if you find that interesting. And where can people find these, these books? At? They're all available on Amazon, or um, you can go, for my books, you can go to my website, which is uh, www.kcezel.net. Um, also, you can, if you Google search uh, Chris Kennedy Publishing, That'll bring you to my publisher's, uh, Chris Kennedy's webpage, and they're all available there. Um, also, you can find um, quite a bit of the stuff available on Bain.com, which is B-A-E-N dot C-O-M. So that's where, like, um, you know, the Black Tide Rising anthology is, the Forged in Blood anthology that I did, uh, that I had a story in with uh, Michael Z. Williamson is. And that's where um, my noir anthology will come out uh, in May. So. All right, Casey, do you have anything else to add? No, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. This was really fun. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm actually, I'm super excited to learn more about the, the whole Rifts universe because it, it sounds very cool. So, awesome. Yeah. And I have to say, if you ever get into a game with Larry Correa, you've got to invite me. <laughs> Sometimes he auctions them off for charity, and, and, and they do, like, some really cool stories. He did a... Um, uh, a game called Gritty Cop, Gritty Cop Show uh, at, huh. uh, I think it was at Dragon Con. They auctioned off spots in this game, and it was, uh, maybe it was Liberty Con. I'm not sure. Um, but, yeah, it was apparently just a, a rip-roaring time. That's awesome. <laughs> cool. So. All right, Casey, well, I appreciate it. And, uh, well, I guess you're not flying today, so. No, so, so I think the weather's you. bad, yeah. I'll but. probably just go make some more words. Awesome. <laughs> All right, have a good day. Thank Bye. you. Bye, guys. I'd like to apologize to my listeners. Uh, I've been working on a new uh, microphone and software setup, so that probably has affected the sound quality of the recording today. So stick it out there. I'll try to get it worked out over the next few episodes. If you have any refugee questions, wish to leave a mission report, or submit a Legionnaire for Legionnaire's Last Call, please email me at voiceofhopepodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area and interested in Savage Rifts or Savage Worlds, please look up the Facebook group, The Capital Savages. The Voice of Hope is a Savage Rips fan podcast. The music in the intro and prologue are Killers and Rhinos theme by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Voice alteration is accomplished with Voice Mod Pro, and noises are added by Sirenscape. The links are in the show notes. Savage Worlds and Deadlands are copyrighted 2016 and trademarked to Pinnacle Entertainment Group, all reserve. Rifts in the Megaverse are registered trademarks of Palladium Books.